Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. It's a pleasure to be here today with Paul Nachme, who is the DeRote Assistant Professor of Judaic Studies and Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at Brown University. His research focusing, focuses, among many other issues, on questions of identity, race, religion, nationalism, and the dynamics of secularism and public reasoning and how these topics interact with Judaism and the Jewish community. So thanks for taking time to talk today. Cheers. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So um, I've been thinking a lot about the facade we have today of Jews and blacks being in sync. Um, now, of course, Jewish and black are not binaries. There's um, a huge number of, of Jews of color. Um, but looking at the American history to understand better, uh, it seems like we have this famous picture of Heschel and MLK, and we're like, oh, Jews were at the center of civil rights, and so white Jews, um, not to mention Jews of color, and, and uh, black Gentiles were, uh, are you know, lock and sink today. But that's clearly not the case. And uh, before we can even look at today how we can build bridges, I think it might be interesting to look at some of the history um, and and understand some of that context. So I think the first question I would ask you is, how would you understand some of the differing uh, approaches between Jews and and, and Blacks around um, how we've responded to and articulated suffering and injustice, Mm -hmm. our own suffering and injustice? Right. So I think it's it's an interesting um, it is obviously an interesting history because yeah. when we look at the American context and we think a lot about this kind of storied history of like the civil rights era that you know is I think you're right it's a kind of like a myth now at this point um, it's in many ways because Jews have experienced a very specific history in Europe and so when I say Jews here I mean Ashkenazi Jews primarily Jews in Eastern and Western Europe but that's the the suffering they draw on as a way of of making sense of their own situation and that was the same history that was invoked in the civil rights era to be like oh we recognize this sort of black suffering as something familiar to us as something from our own past Mm -hmm. and that was in effect like a way to mobilize like Jewish suffering as recognizable, um, or rather black suffering as recognizable to Jews. Um, and that made sense for obviously immigrant Jews coming to America, but there are other ways in which I think, you know, Jews have had a completely different history in America, mainly because Ashkenazi Jews, um, those that benefit from skin privilege, like white skin privilege, have been able to sort of participate once the doors were open to them to participate in American society, they did so willingly. And so that's, I think, where part of that history, like the black folks were never offered that opportunity because of the fact of pigmentation, right? They, they just can't escape skin color. Mm-hmm. It's like the Louis Armstrong singing, you know, Ralph Ellison, an invisible man, very beginning of the text, talking about listening to Louis Armstrong sing about like, what did I do to become so black and blue? My only sin is the color of my skin, you know, mm-hmm. like that kind of like, it's just this accident of pigmentation. So black folks have never been allowed that, but Jews have. And so I think that's part of the disconnect, but there are ways that I think, 
thinkers in the past have had very similar responses to their community suffering. And so one example um, is like, and it seems very strange to put these two thinkers in the same conversation, same breath, but um, looking at someone like Vladimir Jabotinsky and then looking at Malcolm X as two figures who have like looked at the situation that faces their communities and said, there is no hope for us. There's no future for us. So for Jabotinsky's case, there's no future for the Jew in Europe. And so for that very reason, we need to turn elsewhere and we need to find a state for ourselves or find at least some kind of autonomy for ourselves. For Malcolm X, similarly, there is no future for the black man in America because America is only for the white man. And so that's like a turn inwards to try and say we need to prioritize our communities first and foremost. And that's a very real and I think legitimate response to experiences of suffering. It also interesting, if you think about Malcolm X, is a reason why I think the myth of cooperation isn't, it, I mean, it is a myth because there's also, I think, a legitimate reason why for someone like Malcolm X to say, we need to prioritize our needs. And in Jabotinsky's case, I mean, there are lots of European Jews that claim Jabotinsky was a, a proto-fascist because he only prioritized Jewish flourishing. And to the, in some cases, in a way that mimicked what many folks might have thought of like ethno-nationalist movements in, in Europe at the time as well. So those are two responses, but I don't think they're the only ones. Yeah. Yeah. You often hear that today still um, um, in certain Jewish circles that we're the uh, lonely notion, nation that dwells alone mm -hmm. and you can never really trust allies. No one will be there for us in the end. And so the only hope is the isolationism. Now it's, a state doesn't sound as isolationist. But, um, and, and I, you know, I don't hear that same conversation in the black community, but I wonder like, what is, I mean, just looking back at the civil rights experience, it feels like, um, you know, MLK was drawing upon Hebrew scriptures. He could have used, had Jesus as the model, but he had Moses as the model. And that wasn't really drawn out of Jewish experience because that's part of their Bible as well. Absolutely. Um, but Jews also latched onto them for their own acceptance. Civil rights movement wasn't just altruistic for them all. It was also a part of their own acceptance of being a part of that movement. And so I wonder, like, what does it look like for um, to have the opposite response with Kapitinsky and Malcolm X? Like, what does it look like when those have said, yes, we're really concerned about our community, but our fate really is intertwined? Mm -hmm. And how does our discourse of values kind of shift in that process? Right. I mean, I think that's in terms of what happens when you prioritize your community and alleviation of your own community suffering first and foremost. I think what it can do is that, I mean, yes, on the one hand, it can make you isolationist and it can make you turn inward to yeah. the exclusion of everyone else. Yeah. But on the other hand, I do think what it does, and I think it's interesting to say that like Heschel and MLK both are good examples of like, you know, the use of prophecy and a prophetic voice and the notion of like what prophetic justice might have meant to either of them um, as a way of like for their own purposes. Like I think you're right, like MLK growing up in the black church and a, the ways in which the role of, of the Exodus narrative, yeah. you know, this is, um, you know, Eddie Glaude has written on like the ways in which the Exodus narrative helps configure an understanding of like an African-American religious, uh, political religious history that makes, makes those narratives so central to like what a national identity would mean for black folks in America. I think for Heschel, um, he's read, he was reading prophetic texts in a completely different way from like the time of his like, mm -hmm. doctoral dissertation mm -hmm. forward because he was looking for a kind of model of like time and truth and the articulation of ethical norms. And so the fact that they were both doing this work on texts that they both claimed ownership over yeah. in very specific, I don't, that's where the bridge kind of emerged, I think, right? It wasn't that, I don't think Heschel said, what can I do 
to, you know, find an access point to the project of the civil rights. It was that I think he was always already working on this MLK claiming these are like, these are the, these are the possessions of a people that he belongs to Mm -hmm. and independently while working on it. And they realize that there's something that they share in common. And that's that bridge emerges almost organically, Mm -hmm. I think is what makes them such interesting figures. Um, Again, like I don't, I think, you know, there's, you can always have the more critical conversation of reading Heschel and trying to make sense of what his understanding of black suffering really is and what, where he positions himself in relation, like in his community in relation to the black community at the time. Um, and also, I mean, there's lots to be said about, you know, um, how like for, for MLK towards the end of his life, um, he was also diverting in some ways from the kind of like solely biblical focus, you know, he became, um, I think the intention for his last speech was supposed to be to like a, um, a labor union. I mean, this was before his assassination. Yeah, like, yeah. He had a kind of shift towards a more socialist politics and, you know, that might've been quasi anathema to Heschel given yeah. his, you know, pleading for the Soviet Jews. Uh, so I think that it's interesting that the moment that they had overlap was because they shared this yeah. understanding of what prophecy meant. Yeah. So. so in what ways do you see conversation about the, the Shoah, and of, of African-American slavery in America uh, as being um, uh, productive, mm-hmm. those, com- those kind of comparisons, and in what ways are they uh, somewhat uh, destructive? Right. So I think the ways in which, I mean, let me start with the way, the way I think they're maybe destructive, yeah. because I think it's all too frequent, and as you know, someone who teaches about um, you know, race and modernity and have a lot of students that ask questions about what about the Holocaust, right. if we were talking about black, about African uh, enslavement and the Middle Passage, and they'll say, oh, well, you know, it's, the Holocaust is, you know, comparable. And comparison, that language really irks me, and it, I think it should irk all of us, because, you know, you fall into this kind of, when you do that kind of thinking, it's almost like you're keeping a pros and cons list, you know, you're checking boxes, mm-hmm. and comparison just becomes like a kind of Olympic kind of game, and I find that very negative because what then ends up happening is that we respond almost, it seems, to the un- our feelings of discomfort, right? With um, knowing that, especially for Jews today, knowing that the suffering we're talking about is a past suffering, whereas for black folks in America, up until this very minute, are still living that suffering. Yeah. They're still yeah. subject to structural racism in right. ways that like, we couldn't even enumerate. And so that is where I think sometimes our, our, for Jews, feeling... Jews who are, you know, not Jews of color, um, that feel uncomfortable with the fact this is a historical memory, they seize on the comparison as a way of trying to like say, we're in this together. Mm -hmm. But that actually stops the conversation because for, and this is like, you know, going back to some like James Baldwin's essay, you know, um, blacks are anti-Semitic because they're Mm -hmm. anti-white, which is often a misunderstood essay. But I think what Baldwin's arguing there is that, you know, to black folks in America, they don't see a history they see they see a white person and they can't see immediately why they should share a fate together so i think that when the the holocaust is cited that can be destructive to the conversation because it's basically saying you know okay but there's this historical fact we all have to admit is somehow and often the holocaust can be cited in this way as like the greatest ill of all times the greatest evil ever manifested and look, the Shoah was horrific and there's no way to minimize the suffering that Jews endured. And, you know, I'm married to, into a family of, of some Holocaust survivors and the trauma is real. The ways it could be productive though, is not to simply compare it, I think, is actually to say in which like, look, we have to localize these sufferings. So for the Holocaust, 
the ways in which Jews suffered because of the ways in which a very specific national socialist ideology took what was absolutely a rhetoric of the Jews being racialized as other than human. That was real in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. Absolutely. But it happened in a very different way than the racialization of, of Africans and then black Americans and slavery, I think is different mainly because, and this is how I would maybe sum it up in a slightly theoretical way. There's a, there's a very real loss. Like you have millions of people, Africans who were stripped of their ethnic cultural identities reduced merely to skin color and then had to basically make sense of that fact. Whereas Jews have been able to float across color lines in America and Europe to pass their sufferings are real, but it's not the same. So maybe starting there. It's it's interesting when these atrocities get recognized and how and how they don't get recognized and the Shoah largely recognized. um, And even with Nuremberg uh, trials and reparations, whereas black slavery never gets recognized, obviously no reparations yet, although I'm an advocate for that. Um, Or then you look at South Africa, the Truth and Reconciliation Act, which is totally different than the Nuremberg trials and what it means to not really resolve with justice um, and to sort of punish. Um, so, um, mm. but let me ask you one, one last question. Uh, you've done a lot of work on Herman Cohen. Mm. How, how was your understanding of his thinking and the bridges he was looking to make intellectually, um, informed how you think about the Jewish black, uh, expressions of freedom? So I think what I found really interesting about Herman Cohen was this, you know, one of the most important later 19th century German Jewish thinkers, largely because what I found interesting, he wasn't writing Jewish thought, right. he was an interpreter of Kant and neo-Kantian mm-hmm. philosophy yeah. and gained success that way. Yeah. Um, but what Cohen did that's so interesting is that he, in effect, like knew the German philosophical tradition so well, knew German cultural history so well that he was able to basically say, like, look, Germany is a Protestant country. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a Protestant, like the whole idea of Imperial Germany was built on the recognition of Protestant Christianity being like culturally important to Germans. And he wasn't going to deny that and say, no, no, we should have this kind of neutral public sphere. He was like, yeah, that's the history of Germany. And Jews can fit into this because Protestantism allows Jews to similarly participate in a public sphere because it wants to separate church and state. Yeah. That works for Jews. Mm-hmm. And so what he did, what I try to kind of, what I learned from Cohen was that he's basically giving this like minority reflection on a majority culture and by telling the history of this majority culture through the eyes of a minority what it actually does is it kind of provincializes that history so what would otherwise be like german saying like our story is the only story it's the only story we care about right through the eyes of minority it's like it's just another story yeah totally and then it's and then you line it up to like the jewish minority story and by doing that i saw something in cohen's whole it's like his method of just thinking, of comparing in the way that's not like, this is like this, but rather like from my local position, I'm going to tell the story about the majority that I'm not a part of, mm-hmm. or at least not immediately considered a part of. Yeah. And by telling that story, I'm, I'm basically showing that like, it's just another discrete past. Yeah. And there's something about that that actually is productive because it allows majorities to, they're quantitatively majority. That's fine. It also allows an entry point for like another minority community to say like, we're fine with recognizing that this is a Protestant country mm-hmm. and this is how we fit into it. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So Super interesting stuff. Professor Paul Nachman, make sure to check out his uh, amazing books and writings. Thanks so much for your time. Sure, thanks so much.